everyone, this is Evan at Stride. Please enjoy this first part one of our For the Love of Running webinar with Tom Tinman Schwartz. So you're a USATF level three endurance and IAAF, now known as World Athletics level five elite endurance running coach. You have over 30 years of experience. You have a master's degree in exercise science and business administration, and soon you'll complete your PhD in health and human performance, which is also known as exercise science from Concordia University, Chicago. You coach dozens of NCAA D1 runners, high schoolers, national champions, and national record holders. National record holders. On top of that, you're the coach of the upcoming elite running team, 10 Man Elite, that's based here in Boulder, Colorado. You're also coach of the newly formed 10 Man Track Club. So um, today we're really excited to talk uh, about uh, maintaining elite performance and how the running world will change. Uh, for now, the floor is totally yours. We'll do a question and answer bit at the end with some of the questions that we have. And then if anybody watching live has questions, please feel free to uh, drop them in the uh, question box and we'll be able to push them along at the end of Tom's presentation. But uh, without further ado, Tom, the floor is totally yours. Oh, I thought you were going to ask me questions. Okay. Um, you did send me some questions ahead of sure. time for my yep. request, and I really appreciate that. Mostly just like topic areas, and and first topic was adjusting the current pan, uh, adjusting to the current pandemic situation. Yes. And the question you ask is, how are you managing client and elite team needs in the trying current situation? Um, first, I encourage making lemonade out of lemons. In other words, your attitude. Uh, you could you could just you know cave into this situation or you can look for opportunity. And pretty much all of life, if you're looking for opportunity, you're gonna find, uh, you, you'll find solutions, uh, you'll find that your attitude elevates and you're ready to tackle life. So that's the first one, um, attitude, make lemonade out of lemons. Second, uh, I said, uh, I'm revising uh, training schedules to focus on developing a stronger foundation and a more gradual buildup. Um, I think it's a big deal. If if you're in this situation, you might as well just continue to build whatever foundational components that you normally do in the off season, just for a longer period of time. Um, third, I encourage runners to establish long-term goals. I, the one thing about runners is, like all athletes, is they thrive when they have goals in, in mind. Um, they get more lazy, they get uh, apathetic when they don't have goals. They're not like normal people. They're not, right? They rise to the occasion. They like the challenge. And so it's important to have long-term goals. So when, as an example, you might say, hey, I'm a track guy. Um, let's say I'm a lead track guy. Well, the problem won't be any races in April or May maybe not even June, but we'll probably get going either July or maybe early August, something like that. And I guarantee you meet directors out there are going to find, uh, find ways of making it possible for athletes to compete later in the summer. So in your mind, maybe set up, hey, I'm going to be competing on August 10th. I better be ready to roll. So 
somewhere maybe about a month before that, I'm starting to do some time trials, that sort of thing, kind of get myself ready because I haven't been racing for a long time. Or maybe certain key workouts that you like to use, they kind of get you into the racing mode, so to speak. If you're a road racer, you're thinking, hey, I'm going to probably run uh, a 10K, like the Beach to Beacon or something like that in August. Um, maybe I'll run a half marathon in September. And maybe I'll shoot, maybe I'll anticipate the Chicago Marathon is going to be held. Um, or maybe I'm going to shoot for a CIM or something like that. Or Berlin. Is Berlin in the fall? It seems like it is. Yeah, it's a September race. Yeah, yeah. Maybe something like that. If you're a European uh, and you're and you're shooting for something like Berlin, expect it'll probably be on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, um, I have one kind of follow-up on this. For a lot of people listening that maybe aren't on the elite side, you mentioned um, you know, races having prize money and, you know, races getting canceled now impacts athletes. How do athletes kind of uh, adjust? And maybe you can peel back the layers of how does an athlete normally decide, uh, you know, working with your athletes? How do you decide, say, hey, you should go do, you know, this track race, uh, you know, in a normal scenario, and then maybe how it kind of switches now or what races you look for as a coach for the elite athletes? So in a normal situation, normal context, we're, we're looking at development as the primary focus. What do I need to get me to the level I um, want to be at when I'm at the championships? So, for example, in the United States, we had the U.S. Olympic trials, okay, or the national championships in uh, uh, other years. Like, for example, last summer in July, we had the national championships in Des Moines at Drake University. Well, you're setting up in your mind the kinds of preparatory races that will get you to the point where a you've qual- got to qual- a you qualify if you haven't already, and b if you've already qualified, um, you may be taking a slightly different approach. But any of the the spring races and early summer races have to get you to the point where you're feeling great and on top of your game when you get to uh, when you get to the nationals. It would be the same if you were a high school runner or you know trying to shoot for may or june state championships in a normal year it does you no good to race 25 times before going to the state meet and then you got nothing left in the tank and unfortunately too many high school coaches feel compelled to race their athletes often to score points and uh, but I will tell you, the very successful high school coaches have a different viewpoint. They're like, OK, look, I could take glory and we could we could kick everybody's buttons and have every, have my top athletes race in three races at every track meet. Or we can take a long term view and say nothing really matters until the last three or four weeks of the season. Um, so everything's about thinking long term in a normal context. Well, uh, I would suggest that the same kind of view needs to be taken with a slight modification in the current situation. Um, We don't know if we're going to have a national championship, but I'm guessing we will. Um, I'm guessing the Olympic trials will be postponed for track and field um, until next year. But my guess is USA track and field is going to say we need to have a national championship. So they might make it uh, September. Who knows? Okay, something like that, or August. 
Um, I would rather they actually delay it. I, I've always thought that it's kind of foolishness uh, in track and field to have all these championships when it's hotter and blazes outside. That's fine if you're a 100, 200 meter sprinter, maybe a 400 meter, but it already starts getting deleterious at 800 meters. And it certainly crushes, crushes the performance of anybody 1,500 meters and up. You simply can't run very well. And I would suggest that it favors the athletes who have some particular ability to run well in hot weather. Mm-hmm. And the guys that are, uh, or gals that are not as good at hot weather have a severe disadvantage. Mm-hmm. I've seen this over and over where in the spring or say September, an athlete might run really well. Let's let's pick somebody out of the blue that's not on my team. Let's say Johnny Gregoric. Sure. Good good guy. I really respect him a lot. I like his like his dad, mm-hmm. like his coach. Anyway, maybe Johnny's the type of guy that uh, races well when it's 70 degrees out in the 1500. Mm-hmm. But he runs three seconds, four seconds slower, you know, in 90 degrees in Des Moines, Iowa in the middle of the summer. Mm-hmm. He might have been first, second, or third, and he ends up becoming fifth, sixth, or seventh in the hot weather. Right. But if you raced six different times against the same field, Johnny being the top three, four or five out of those six. Right. When the weather is decent. Right. But when it's hot, four or five times out of six, he's way back. Mm-hmm. That's I'm just kind of making it up, and I don't right. – hundred percent know about Johnny's profile. I just kind of use that as an example. <laughs> but yeah, these are, um, these are things for like the Boston marathon being postponed until September. These are going to be things for, you know, elites and non-elites as well that have to transition. If they have a goal race that was normally going to be, you know, March or April or May, and then it all of a sudden gets postponed to when it can still be hot and humid. So even a, mm-hmm. um, regular runner has to take these sort of things into kind of consideration, which, segues into the um you know the the second sort of topic of how can uh you know the strategies that you have for the elites be kind of transitioned to somebody that might be listening to this or watching this um that might not be an elite runner but they still want to uh take some of these strategies and adjust them for their situation well i would suggest the major uh, mistake made by the average runner the non-elite the recreational runner whatever you want to call them is that they don't target specific big goals. What they do is they just want to race all the time. And you're never, ever going to reach your top potential doing that. Elite athletes know that you just you can only target maybe a couple, maximum three really good races at the end of the season. So you use any other race leading up to that as preparation, whether it's to refine your pacing strategies your fueling and hydration strategies, your warm-up routines, fine-tuning your body, um, learning from the situation you run. If you're, say, a 5,000-meter runner and you're an elite 5,000-meter runner and you go and run a 1,500-meter, say, at Occidental, well, are you doing it because you're trying to prove anything in a 1,500? No, not really. You're doing it as, A, you like to get out there and race occasionally, but, B, you're using it as information. Okay, is my speed, even though I've been really focusing on aerobic development and strength, and I jump into 1500, and I run a 337, and I haven't really been doing a lot of race pace or fast and race pace work, 
What does it show me? It probably shows me that I don't need to be in a panic. I don't need to start doing a bunch of intense quality training anytime soon because the championships is are two months away, right? And I'm already at 337 and I'm a 5,000 meter guy, right? So at that point, you just keep doing what you're doing. You keep doing a lot of longer intervals, longer tempo runs, keep your volume up, do your hills, all those sorts of things. But if you go in there and you run 342, and you're a guy that wants to run 13.15, and you know that at 13.15, you probably need at least a 3.37 ability as your basic speed indicator. So if you're at 3.42 and you're two months away, you probably need to start doing some quality training that are shorter, like repeat 400s or whatever, right? All the great coaches use benchmarks. Well, as a, as a recreational runner, you should do the same thing. If you're always running the 5K every single weekend, how are you going to be able to tell whether you need to alter your training or not? Maybe you need to do a, a, a one-mile road race, or maybe you get on the track and do a 1,600-meter time trial, four laps, okay, to test yourself, right? Maybe you need to jump in a 10K or a 15K or a 10-mile race to see how your endurance is is doing. And if your 10K or especially your 10, 15K, 10 mile or half marathon times don't match up to your 5K, meaning they're significantly slower on the predicted charts, right? The equivalency charts. That means your real need is endurance. You need to get out there and get more distance work in, longer intervals, tempos, that sort of. You don't need to be doing VO2 max training if your half marathon time is significantly worse on the equivalency table than your 5K time. And I guarantee if your five or if your half marathon um, performance is subpar compared to your 5K time, that means your your mile time is really great if you were to jump into it, right? You have to profile yourself. Average everyday runners never think of that. First of all, most of them don't have coaches and they should. And just showing up at some running club with the, a novice coach, you know, doesn't doesn't do you anything because all they do is re, prescribe repeat 400s, 800s as fast as anybody can go, and you just try to keep up with the leaders. There's no individual prescription there. So let's say somebody um, listened to this and they say, hey, you know, maybe now is a great time because my races in the next, you know, eight to 12 weeks uh, look like they're not going to happen. What would you uh, encourage maybe like, um, you know, a couple steps for somebody to figure out whether they are, you know, maybe predisposed more, their, their training right now is better for the 5K. How would they figure out um, by maybe doing a set of time trials, whether they need to add in these tempos and stuff, how would they maybe discover that they need to add in sort of this work and stop doing as much of that, um, you know, kind of fast stuff right now? Yeah. Well, if you had a stride power meter, you certainly could, I'm, you know, I'm helping you out there, but I, I totally believe in stride products. I use the power assessment all the time and I profile because it's far more accurate than using GPS. So uh, you can set up time, you know, set up time trials um, to determine how your, what your power profile is, whether you're dropping off significantly. If you don't have a stride power meter, then you got to go on a, a, a measured course and you can't, uh, you can't have something like wind 
be a factor. Now, stride power meters will help you adjust for wind. So even if you're out there doing a 10-mile road time trial and you happen to have a wind at your back or in your face, or if you're going up a little hill or down a little hill or it varies, it doesn't matter because the power is power and the power will adjust. Even though you're going faster down the hill, right, the power will drop because you're really not producing as much force into the ground, right? And even though you're going slower up the hill or into the wind, the power will adjust and show that you're actually generating more power or force into the ground, even though your GPS pace is going up. So if you got the power mirror, yeah, you can uh, you can use that uh, in any context, whether it's on a, a measured trail or, or a measured road or wherever. If you don't, then you better be running on something like a track or, or circle loop you know, you might set up a thousand meters or a one mile loop in your neighborhood that's safe away from traffic and you're constantly running on that. So so the the as a general rule, it's not 100 percent, but any cancel any wind help one direction will be somewhat canceled the other. Now, the research shows that it actually doesn't make up for it 100 percent, but it's better than just running in one direction, a time trial. And you should be doing a variety of time trials if you're not racing. You should go out and maybe 10 miles is too far for you as a recreational runner. If I were you, I would just set up, you know, like a six, six or seven mile course, maybe a 10K course, as opposed to an elite runner. You know, they might do a 10 mile time trial or a 10 mile at, at just below 100% effort. I've, I've for many years always said, run it at 97%. Doesn't matter if you're doing a mile time trial, two mile time trial, 10 mile, run it at 97% because you can predict with fairly good accuracy what 100% would be without absolutely gutting yourself. And it's very difficult, very, very difficult to run 100% effort by yourself, right? So the, the, the anxiety is lowered also when you're thinking to yourself, I'm just going to do a 97% effort time trial, and then I'll estimate what a 100% is. For example, a lot of my high school kids, I'll have them do a 2,000-meter time trial, for example, in the winter time when they're not racing for a while, mm -hmm. for a couple purposes. One, and I'll tell them 97% effort, by the way. They'll run a 97% effort, and they let's say they run uh, 530. They're an elite high school runner. I coach several elite high school runners. They run 5 minutes, 30 seconds, and they're at sea level. And they say, I could have ran 525. Good. Now we use 525 as the absolute maximum, right, reference for now. And we put it into the Timan calculator and see what our training paces are. And we also scroll down and we look on the Timan calculator and see what our equivalencies are. So 530, well, actually 525 now predicts I can run a mile in, in 422, uh, 1600 meters in 422 or whatever it is and a 3,200 in whatever time that is, say 9.30. That gives you a benchmark of where you are, right? And then you might, uh, four weeks later or three weeks later, run an 800-meter time trial. Okay, see how it matches up. Now, matches up not only in the equivalency tables, but from your personal history. Let me give you an example. Reed Fisher on my team is a marathon runner. Very, very good long-distance runner. Now, he'll admit readily that he doesn't have a lot of top-end speed. 
And he's not embarrassed by that. That's just his profile because his muscle fiber type is different than, than some of the guys that are quicker, right? He has a lot of more type one endurance, slow twitch muscle fibers. And uh, that's what makes him a great long distance. One of the things that makes him a long distance runner, right? He can sustain a, a high pace uh, just below his max for a very, very long period of time, provided he's training, trained properly. Reed would fall apart if he were given 400 meter intervals as his main training stimulus all the time with lower volume. He could not succeed on 60 miles a week and, and 12 times 400. He would run like 64 minutes in the half marathon as opposed to 61 and change. Right? Okay. So um, understanding your personal history is part of the assessment, right? Part of the assessment and valuation design, right? If you're a high school kid and you will focus mostly on the 3200, and let's say you're 940, which is 70 seconds a lap, when you're in your top shape and you run 940, what do you usually um, run in the 800? Well, maybe you run two minutes and two seconds, okay? So that's kind of your benchmark. So you go out there in the off season, you run something that gives you an indicator of close to what your two mile is capable of. Maybe you run at 97% effort and you say, and you come out at 950. You're like, you know what? 97% effort, 950 by myself. I'm at least 940 shape when I'm in a race, maybe 936. And then two weeks later or a week later, you run the 800 time trial as part of a workout. You don't use that as the only thing. Right, you do a thorough race warm up. You run an 800 meter time trial. See where you are, and maybe you run 208. Oh, okay. You ran a 950. You run a 208. Maybe the max you could have gone in competitions 206. Right now, uh, you're probably okay. Normally, you're in not 202 when you're in top shape. You're 206 equivalent, and you're eight weeks away from the racing season. Now, four weeks from the racing season, maybe you do the same thing. You do another two-mile time trial, and you run at 944 this time at 97% effort. You think in the race, maybe 932, 934. So I'm making progress endurance-wise. week later, or at the end of the week, you run an 800-meter time trial, and now you're 204. You know what? You're on track. Now you're four weeks away from the racing season. Now what if you're still 206, but your endurance is better? Then you have to make a judgment call or your coach has to make a judgment call. Do we need to add a little more short quality in there? Right? Because we're now four weeks away from the racing season. But you also really should keep in mind how far are you away from your championship event? Because if the racing season is starting in four weeks, but your championship event is in 12 weeks, and you're only four seconds off where you need to be in the 800, probably shouldn't rush it. Just let that kind of development come over the normal training season too. Yeah, it will happen once you start racing on the track. Right when your actual season starts. Right now, if you're four weeks away from the end of the season, you're part with you're three quarters away through the season or two thirds away through the season, and you're still at two oh six. And you and your coach better decide. You better do some three hundred meter repeats, maybe four or five of them, mm -hmm. and then still do your long intervals or whatever because you're a thirty two hundred meter person or your tempos and keep up your distance work. The mistake is to is to fall prey to the conventional models of, of this inverse relationship between volume and intensity. That is the huge mm -hmm. mistake that is made all the time. 
And unfortunately, too many coaches were convinced of that because of previous models that were trained, taught to them mm-hmm. at coaching clinics. But the problem is the model is not wrong. It's just applied to the wrong people. Mm-hmm. The model is good for the 400 meter, 800 meter runner. Mm-hmm. You see, you start out with volume at the early part of the developmental phase, less intensity. Mm-hmm. And then as time goes on, you start switching. it. Mm-hmm. So by mid-season, you're kind of mid midway between the highest volume you do and the highest intensity you do. And by the end of this season for a 400-meter runner, you need to be lower volume and higher intensity, mm-hmm. simply because the greatest factor at that point is your power and your economy. Mm-hmm. The economy meaning the amount of energy required for you to get that speed. Mm-hmm. Okay, it can it can be measured in oxygen, but it can be measured in kilocalories, mm-hmm. but it can be measured in other ways. With stride power meters, you can actually measure it. Mm-hmm. Okay, but that model of inverse relation between volume and intensity does not work for the vast majority of anybody who anybody who runs the mile or longer. Right. Now there are a few milers that have the good fortune, the blessing of having a huge heart and a high VO2 max as a consequence because 75% of your VO2 max is determined by your heart. Mm-hmm. Okay, the other 25% is muscle oxidative capacity, mm-hmm. blood volume is part of it, capillary density, mitochondrial right. capacity, on and on and on. Right. Okay, but throwing away the exception of the kid who can run lower volume and still succeed in the mile. The mm-hmm. vast majority of people that want to run in the mile need a medium high volume mm-hmm. most of the season and only a slight reduction just prior to their main event. Mm-hmm. Because if they do this inverse relationship model that's for, that's good for 400 meter runners and keep dropping their volume throughout the season and increasing their intensity, they will start to lose their endurance and stamina. Mm-hmm. Endurance meaning the ability to run long at a lower intensity right. or stamina, the ability to run at a medium distance at a medium high intensity. Mm-hmm. They will lose those two because of the total volume there is dropping mm-hmm. and they're getting away from longer intervals, say three, four, five minute intervals, mm-hmm. which are golden, golden for ve- developing stamina, mm-hmm. right? Think of stamina as the ability to run about half an hour really well. Right, right. Right, that's a really good benchmark. And it's a, right. it's, it's something that, that can be as relatable to a wide variety of people. Mm-hmm. It's the reason I picked it a long time ago. Right. Right. Uh, the world-class TV. runner, mm-hmm. the world-class runner, they think, okay, my 10K, 12K type ability, right? Mm-hmm. The 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 kid that runs six minutes for the mile, mm-hmm. if their coach is teaching them properly, right? Six minutes for the mile and, and 12:30 for the two mile. Well, they're half their half hour racing speed, that's like four to five miles. Mm-hmm. Okay, but the time is the big factor that they need to keep in their mind as a coach and as an athlete. Okay, is my half hour racing ability good? Mm-hmm. Because if it's if it's in, eroded and you're you're six weeks out from the the end of the track season, it's eroded. If you no longer can go out and do say a five mile uh, run really f- at at the same fast pace you were four weeks prior earlier in the season. Mm-hmm. You are in trouble, right? And let me give you let me give you a historical perspective on mm-hmm. this. Somebody who brilliantly understood this was Arthur Lydiard, mm-hmm. 
from a long time ago. For those of you who are younger and don't understand, Arthur Lydiard was, was a, a runner coach from New Zealand who developed an understanding based on Coach Webb and a couple other people prior to him that endurance was a big factor. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so what happened was he developed the concept of doing a lot of aerobic endurance training so that your fitness was so high that once you started doing quality training, meaning short repetitions at faster speed, you could do a lot more of them mm -hmm. without breaking down and recover better from them. Okay. But one thing that most people don't get about Arthur Lydiard's concepts is that he did time trials. Now, mm -hmm. note, he didn't have runners do them all out. Mm -hmm. He had them do equivalent to about what I do, 97%. Right. Right? He called it seven-eighths efforts based on Swedish coach Gosta Homer's charts. Mm -hmm. He did assign training paces as a general. People think that he didn't, but he did. He had charts from Gosta Homer. I could go over that some other time. And it's very extensive. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Bill Bowerman from Oregon had the same charts, mm -hmm. as well as Bill Dellinger, who used those charts extensively, right, at the University of Oregon for many years. Okay? Gosta Homer was a brilliant man ahead of his time. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, Lydiard would do things like, okay, you are a miler. Peter Snell, Murray Halberg, mm -hmm. okay? John Davies, all the great elites he coached. He would yeah. say, you're a miler. I still want to know. We're four weeks out from the from the Olympics. Mm -hmm. I want to know what your endurance is like. Yes, we did a big 10-week base uh, marathon conditioning phase, which is what he called it. Mm -hmm. Then we went to hills. We mm -hmm. kept a long run in. We did drop the volume a little bit. We started doing some introductory 400 meters fast, 400 meters slow, or a 200 meter fast, 200 meters slow. A lot of people don't realize that he borrowed that from um, Franz Stomfel. Okay, mm -hmm. who was a great coach who coached Roger Bannister, Chataway, Brasher, all those guys. Right. And he did not do and 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 the brilliance of literary is he followed a good concept, a good model of Franz Stoffel, who said, No, you don't need to run a fast 400 and then take short recovery jog. No, he had Bannister do a full 440 jog recovery and mm -hmm. two and a half minutes. Mm -hmm. Lydiard did the same thing. Because Lydiard said, look, this is a model. He was smart. He was a mm -hmm. practical guy. Not super well-educated from, a, from a, a conventional system, but mm -hmm. very astute. Mm -hmm. Could observe the other people. What work, right. right? He's very much like Bill Bowerman. He was mm -hmm. eclectic. Bowerman always said, the best coaches borrow the best models and fine-tune them, okay, and integrate them and basically adjust them to the individuals on the team. Mm -hmm. Because... As an example, Bill Bowerman, I know I'm segueing, but Bill Bowerman, I told my guys the other day, in the early 60s when he had his team that set the four-by-one-mile world record when they set it down in New Zealand, mm -hmm. they raced people like um, uh, Lydiard's athletes, and they mm -hmm. won. They set the world record. Three of the four guys were sub-four-minute milers on cinders, mm -hmm. like Rothko, Devine, and a couple others. But he trained all three of those sub-four-minute milers differently. In fact, he had four guys. One, the, the slowest guy was like a 403. They all were trained differently. Mm -hmm. But they all ran about the same mile time. Mm. Why? Because he did the same thing as Lydiard. He profiled. Bowerman also had people like his milers do a two-mile time trial throughout the fall and winter. Right. Two-mile time trial about every three weeks or something like that. He would do that, and then three weeks later, he might do an 880 
880 yards or half mile time trial. Mm -hmm. Well, Lydia would do the same thing in the lead up to the world of the Olympic Games. He'd mm -hmm. say, okay, John Davies, go run, uh, run a 5K at 97% effort. He called it seven eighths effort. Mm -hmm. Basically, it was maybe 10 seconds slower, 15 seconds slower than all out. Mm -hmm. Just to see what his endurance was. So for a minor like John Davies, who got third in the Olympics, silver medal or bronze medal, he if if if, if his 5K time was solid four weeks out at seven eighths effort, then Lydia knew your endurance is still good. Mm-hmm. But if the if, but if 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 J Davies struggled, mm -hmm. they said, you know what? We need you're you don't need to be doing a whole bunch more four fast four hundreds. Mm -hmm. We need to get you back and do some 800s and get out there and do a 10-mile tempo run. He didn't call it tempo then, but it was the same concept. Right. Right? Right. And then he would have them do an under-distance, just like Bowerman, an under-distance. They would have them do an under-distance. Okay, let's do a 330-yard time trial. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Right? Which we call 300 meters now. Okay. <laughs> Maybe the endurance was good for John Davis in a 5K, but his 330 was not so good. Right. So we're four weeks out. Lydia's like, not a problem. I'm going to do some 150 meters fast reps and get you a little more speed. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it, this all relates to the average runner as well, whether right. you, or or the non-elite, I should say, mm -hmm. right? Whether you're a high school runner or a recreational runner, you need to do uh, a comprehensive approach. Mm -hmm. You need to use a comprehensive approach to understanding what you need for training at this moment mm -hmm. with the understanding of how many weeks away you are from your peak event. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you do need to go. I would encourage the average everyday recreational 5k runner during periods when we don't have a pandemic, when they're able to race frequently, right. just to vary their event, mm -hmm. run a 10k one week, two weeks later, run a 5k. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe a week later, two weeks later, if they can run a road mile, do it. Mm -hmm. I think another three weeks later, run their 5K. Another two weeks later, run a half marathon or a 15K. Mm -hmm. I really like I really like one hour races mm -hmm. if you can find them. A race that lasts about that long for you mm -hmm. if you want to test your endurance, because that's the demarcation. That's a separate separating point in my mind between mm -hmm. stamina and endurance. If you run a one hour race, roughly. And it's subpar, then you need more endurance work. You need mm -hmm. to back out the intensity and do more distance work. Even if it's slow, it will help you. Mm -hmm. Slow down, run more if your one hour is bad. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like one hour is enough for people, no matter what kind of distance they're training for, let's say like around 5K to above, where they could run it and be able to put in a good effort, but it wouldn't beat them up too much. Like that right. might be a concern for somebody to, oh, I don't want to alter my training, but you're, you, you would be an advocate for saying one hour is not enough to, it's not the same as a marathon or not the same as running even like a, a half marathon for an athlete that might run 90 minutes for a half marathon or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and it goes back to my concept that you must, must always think about the duration of the event, mm -hmm. not the distance. It mm -hmm. is absolutely the wrong strategy mm -hmm. to think about the distance of the event in terms of setting up your training and trying to equate training methods among people on the same team. Mm -hmm. I always give the example uh, of, of the old models being wrong about uh, aerobic and anaerobic. 
And this mm -hmm. relates to how you train. Mm -hmm. The old models said that the mile was 50% aerobic and 50% anaerobic. And I, the very first thing I said when I saw this, you know, I was a sophomore in high school, I was taking biology. I said to Mr. Hine, I said, Mr. Hine, how can that be possible? Because somebody might be a four-minute miter, somebody might be six, and somebody might be an eight-minute miter, or maybe even slower. Mm -hmm. How can it possibly be that everybody is 50% aerobic and 50% anaerobic? I can understand, I said back then, in my preliminary thinking, why somebody who's running closer to the four-minute mark might be quite a bit more anaerobic. And yeah. I don't believe this 50-50. I don't mm -hmm. believe it one bit. I think it's more like 75-25 mm -hmm. for a four-minute minor. And it turns out that uh, research later confirmed I was pretty darn close mm -hmm. because the research shows it's 75 to 84, depending upon which which type of athlete you're using, mm -hmm. um, whether they have more speed or whether they have more endurance. Okay. Right. Which goes back to the point, you know, so two people training for the mile and they're both four minute capability. One might be um, using 84% as an average when he runs a four minute mile. One might be running 75% as an average aerobic contribution mm -hmm. because he has more fast fibers and he has more anaerobic capacity. Right. So they should have a lot of similar training, but an individualized training for small amounts that help them maximize their innate abilities. Mm -hmm. Same thing. Now, but getting back to one hour, your question. Okay. Mm -hmm. If you're an average everyday Dean or Joe, that's, that's say only been running a year, mm -hmm. you may run a 10 K in close to an hour. Mm -hmm. You were sedentary most of your life. You took up the sport to get healthy and fit. Maybe your colleagues at work, maybe what for whatever reason you were inspired to get moving. Mm -hmm. It may take you almost an hour to run a 10K. Mm -hmm. And so therefore the 10K event is a perfect assessment of your aerobic endurance. Mm -hmm. Whereas an elite runner like Reed Fisher can run a 61 and change. For a half marathon. For a half marathon. Right. So doubling, so, more than doubling the distance. Yeah. So, yes, that is a, a wonderful assessment for him. Now, mm -hmm. if you're not racing, or even if you are racing and you just want to run the 10K, let's say you're an every, every day Jane or Joe, um, and you've been running 5Ks, mm -hmm. you can jump in a 10K and not have to run it all out. Right. You can run it at 97% and predict. And the beauty of running 97% is after uh, for a 10K, for an hour person runs in an hour, it's four or five days later, they're totally recovered. Right. Whereas that last three percent yep. <laughs> might be two weeks. Right, right. But then they right. try and jump in and do a workout, you know, four days later, five days later, and then it ends up setting them negative down the road. But advocating for momentum. They yeah. can't keep the ball rolling. Right. Keep the ball rolling. Exactly. Right. You exactly. can't do it. It's very easy. It's very easy to recover from a, a, a time trial that's 97% effort. If you do 90, if you focus on 97% effort, you will find that you, typically it's actually about 5% slower than all out mm -hmm. as a general rule for most people. Mm -hmm. There's a disconnect between the effort and mm -hmm. the actual percentage. Mm -hmm. They don't perfectly match up. Right. So if you're thinking that, if you really think of it that way, that really you're running about 5% slower than all out, even though it feels like 97%, mm -hmm. it, it really does help you understand that you can recover very fast from that submaximal time trial effort and get back to normal training. Mm -hmm. So that might be something for um, like a practical application for this scenario is maybe somebody's running with stride, maybe they're not. You look at, you know, maybe 
a recent all out race that you've done and you scale that back, like you mentioned, like 5% in terms of the pace or the power, and that's going to be maybe, maybe a target that somebody can add, um, you know, maybe two weeks from now, if they decide to do a 10K, add, add in that, uh, you know, that 97% effort, but have a real number to, to go off of if they're not very good at running by feel yet. Right. Well, you know, the beauty of the stride power meter is it will tell you if you ran 97% effort, I, I can tell you that very closely, you are about 5% below in power from where you can be actually at all out at that moment. Yep. So if you run, for example, a 5k and you run it at 97% effort, and let's say your time is 17 minutes, mm -hmm. and you look down and hold on a second real quick. Do some quick math. You are approximately five watts per kilogram for your body weight, mm -hmm. okay? 5.086, mm -hmm. okay? That's very close to what you are. So let's say you weigh 154 pounds, that's 70 kilograms, 5.086 times 70. So all out, you're 356 watts, mm -hmm. okay? You ran that at 97% effort, but really it was about 95% power. So take 356.02 divided by 0.95 because it's inversely proportional mathematically. That means your max is 374.76. Mm -hmm. Now you can use 374.76 as your target two weeks from now when you run all out in the 5K. Right. And you have so that you look confidence. At your watch. Right. If you got a watch that shows power actively in the live status, mm -hmm. you look for 374. Now that's what you want to average. Mm -hmm. I'd suggest the best racing strategy is start below that, mm -hmm. move up to it, and finish beyond it. So right. maybe you start at 368 watts in the early going, mm -hmm. disregarding everybody else in the, in the race who doesn't understand how to pace themselves <laughs> well and to use their energy capable, uh, use their power well, mm -hmm. you know, in the best way possible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You just pay attention, you watch, you run 368 the first kilometer. And then you gradually ease it up to 371 by the second kilometer. By the third kilometer, you want to be at 374. Mm -hmm. By the fourth kilometer, you want to be 377 or 8. And by the fifth kilometer, you want to go for broke, and you're probably 381, mm -hmm. something like that. And you've enabled yourself the ability to close well because you That's understood right. the target. Yeah. That's exactly. right. That's absolutely right. Now, if you were to check your pace and if you were on a perfectly flat course and you didn't have any wind factors, yeah, you will find that your pace. Um, let's see. It's about like 330 kilometers or around there, I think. Okay. So that's roughly, yeah. let's say, you would you would probably be in the neighborhood of eight seconds differential mm -hmm. from the first kilometer to if you were put it in per mile context, mm -hmm. you would have a variation of roughly eight seconds. Mm -hmm. Think of it this way: a world class runner like uh, Kenanisa Beckler, mm -hmm. right? When he was running twelve thirty seven thirty five, okay, that's uh, you know roughly four hundred three a mile, four hundred one and change per sixteen hundred. Okay, what does he do? He goes out in about 231 per kilometer, mm -hmm. right? And he keeps steady on that. He might go 230. In the, I have it actually, I used to have it on my wall when I lived in Bullside. <laughs> the exact all since the 1960s, every mm -hmm. single 5K, I probably have it in my file somewhere. 
every single 5K world record, 5,000 meter world, technically 5K is on the road. 5,000 right. meters. meters. Road. You see, no. Right. Okay. All right. So sometimes I kind of get a little picky about it. <laughs> When they say I ran a 5K, was it a, okay? So you ran the road? No, no. <laughs> so it's 5,000 meters because it's precise on the track. Right. No guarantee it was precise on the road. Right. Okay. So if you look at the records from the 1960s to the present, it's a, I recall the percentage being something like 93 or 94% of the records were with negative splits, mm -hmm. excluding the first lap, the first kilometer where they might be one second faster. Mm -hmm. So all these top athletes like a Kenanisa Buckley or Heidi Geber Selassie or people all the way back to, say, Ron Clark, mm -hmm. who were in 13-16 on cinders, which was an amazing performance, mm -hmm. right, in the day <clears throat> with nine kinds of equipment we don't we would we would laugh at now. I mean, right. heavy their spikes were way heavier than what we have. Right. Way heavier, not even close. But you but what if this this is how they pace, they try to run no faster than their average pace for basically the first 4K mm -hmm. of that 5K race, first 4,000 meters. That five, and the last 5,000 uh, meters, they go for broke. Right. That's how they do it. And everybody's like, oh, it's because they have great speed. No, that's that's not the reason. Mm -hmm. It's a small reason. What they've done is they know, they've, they've consciously made a decision of pacing in a way that they're, they're feeling good enough when they get to the 80% mark of the race, they can pound it. Mm -hmm. Because they know from experience that if you wait until that moment, mm -hmm. you can actually more than make up for being behind by, behind the average pace. Mm -hmm. I personally learned this with cycling with power meters in the 1990s mm -hmm. before they came out with, with power meters, you know, stride power meters on, for feet, right. uh, for runners. The power meter would tell me if I wanted to do a 20-minute time trial or a six-minute time trial mm -hmm. or a 60-minute time, I did all three of those on a regular basis. I either did a six or seven for max aerobic power. I did a 20-minute as my intermediate prediction, mm -hmm. right? Or I did a 60-minute. Mm -hmm. A lot of times I did a 30-minute too instead of the 20 because I found it was a better predictor of my stamina than 20-minute. Right. Okay. What I found was every single time that I went for broke too early, mm -hmm. I slow down no matter how, how how much I wanted to do well. Right. I could not hold it despite my intense desire to do well. Mm -hmm. All right. I say this happens all the time with other people in their regular running events. Mm -hmm. For basically anything over three minutes, you run, need to run with a strategy of holding back until you're 75 or 80% of the way into it and then gun it. Right. And consciously... Hold that back. will be your best strategy. Right. What people don't realize is if, if a world-class marathoner, they watch somebody uh, in the Boston or, or, or something. Let's say take New York City as an example. New York City sure. marathon or Chicago. Mm -hmm. What happens often is you'll see world-class marathoners running their first four miles at just a hair over five minutes. Pace. Yeah. Yep. The people's like, well, they all the, the commentators will will sometimes pick up on it. But more times than not, they'll just like, oh, well, they're running slow. They're, they're kind of looking at each other. They're kind of, you know, waiting for somebody else to go. Mm -hmm. And that may be the case, but I think more times than not, they're smart. Mm -hmm. They know, hey, two hours and six or seven or eight minutes is a long time to be running hard. 
you can't go for broke early on because you deplete all your carbohydrate stores, your glycogen. Right. And you won't be able to finish strong. You slow down. Right. So what do they do? They use the first 20 to 30 minutes as an extended warm up mm -hmm. because all they did prior to the marathon was jog 10 minutes at about nine minutes a mile because mm -hmm. they, they wanted to burn 100 percent fat. Mm -hmm. Right. Whether they knew the physiology or not, they understood the practicality. So they use the first, you know, 20, 25 minutes or so as a warm up. Mm -hmm. What does the average Jane or Joe do when they run the marathon? They go right out their target pace right away when they shouldn't. Right. They should go 20 or 30 seconds slower. Right. Maybe 30 seconds slower in the first mile, then 20 seconds slower in the second mile, third mile, about 10 seconds slower, then the fourth mile, five seconds slower, then the fifth mile, finally close to their average pace. Mm -hmm. And then what's going to happen is if they do this, they'll be able to later on in the race have sufficient energy, mm -hmm. meaning glycogen storage, be able to close hard. Sure. I've had, literally had marathon runners that were, say, three-hour marathon runners, okay, train with me, use the strategy, go out in about 20 seconds to 30 seconds slower in the first few miles. Mm -hmm. And, and they, they, they trusted me. But normally they would never have even tr tried such a strategy. They thought it would be dumb to right. be behind pace. Right. But they trusted me, thank goodness, and they held back. What mm -hmm. ended up happening? It just happened here this winter when one, one guy ran. Okay? He ended up closing the last three miles, about 12 seconds a mile. Eight, then 12, then like 14 seconds a mile, mm -hmm. faster than his average on the last three miles, and hit a new best. He had a six-minute PR. Wow. Yeah. Okay, um, I, so he just I'm, kept I'm bringing it down, and, and over the last half marathon, he was consistently three, four, five, six seconds a mile, and, and getting better than is what he thought he could do before. Mm -hmm. This is possible. You run a five k, and you want to run average six minutes of six minutes a mile. Man, don't run faster than say five fifty five or six on that first mile. Right. Don't do it. Right. My friend John Steiner always says, you know, go out in what you know you go out in the pace or power you know you can handle. Mm -hmm. You've done previously and, and and proved to yourself, and then come back, meaning finish stronger than what you actually can. He does it with rowing now. He was mm -hmm. a former runner for many many years, and he does rowing at power meters all the time. Mm -hmm. He's been doing it for the last fifteen years, and he and I have come to the same conclusion: go out at a below your target and finish faster than your target. Right. By the way, I use the same concept in interval training or fartlek training or whatever with my athletes. Right. If I tell you you're supposed to average 5K pace in the workout, but your current 5K, not your goal, but right. your current 5K pace is, then you're going to start your first few reps slower than your 5K pace. Mm -hmm. Then you go towards the 5K pace in the middle. And if all is going well and you're feeling great, you'll finish a little faster than mm -hmm. or with a little more power than right. your 5K pace or power. Right. right? That's how you should do it. Right. You will be successful nine out of ten times doing that way. Now, if you go with the oh well, I I've ran I ran uh, five minutes a mile in my five k, okay. And if you go out there and start doing repeat miles, let's say repeat half miles, sorry, mm -hmm. at two twenty six, as you want to, you know, I'm going to run my goal pace, and you go right away at two twenty six, you got a thirty or forty percent chance you'll have a good workout. Mm -hmm. I'm telling you. Instead of starting. Just below that in 32. Right. 232. Right. Right. Because you know you can run five minutes a mile. Start at 232. Right. Right. And all goes well. You're at 231 or 230 in the second rep. Mm -hmm. 
And by the sixth rep, you've actually used an extended warm up. You didn't, you weren't too aggressive. You'll finish all six of your reps, mm -hmm. which is a, an important stimulus for improving, improving your physiological capacity. Right. You need to finish the volume at that given intensity. And what will happen is you start at 232, you'll end up at 224, feeling good, right. feeling great. And you're I under control. Like you would you have been. 226. Right. You might be able to do, if you have everything perfectly dialed in for the few days before that, you got all your sleep dialed in perfectly, your hydration, your fueling of carbohydrates, the stress in your life is low. You don't have anything that's stressing you out. Mm -hmm. It's external from running. Okay. But your chance, chances are you'll probably go 226, 226, 228, 231, 236. Right. And you end up finishing the workouts in the mid-230s, and you hate yourself. Right. You think you're a loser. Right? Runners are hard on themselves. Mm -hmm. A lot of athletes are. Mm -hmm. But endurance athletes are very hard on themselves. One of the things that makes an endurance athlete great is their intense passion and motivation. Mm -hmm. It helps them get out there and do all the work that's necessary to be successful. It's why they're not, no offense, but that's not why they're not a sprinter. Right. Different different mindset between the two. Right. For sure. It's not to put sprinters down, but they have a completely different mentality. Right. And then the sprinter can get away with skipping workouts because they only really need a couple fast ones a week. Right. And they can goof off the rest of the time and they know it. It's also why high school coaches want to race often. Why it's conventional is is to have a lot of track meets. Mm -hmm. It's because sprinters don't like to train. They love to compete. Mm -hmm. But so right. if you have two or three track meets a week, that serves as workouts. That's why the East Coast is in love with racing. <laughs> Because if they didn't have it, nobody would be training. No sprinter right. would train. Right. It would take off the entire winter and never improve. Right. Totally. But the coaches race them every single week. Right. Or even twice a week. So right. that they get a bunch of good quality training and their sprinters thrive on. It doesn't help the distance runners. It's actually deleterious to the distance runners, but it helps the sprinters. I know we went way off track. But oh, no, it's great. Um, I, I'm sure people find a ton of wealth out of it. So I I, I love listening and talking about it. Um, we do have a couple listener questions that kind of trickled in. Hey, everyone. This is Evan at Stride. This concludes the first part of our For the Love of Running webinar audio version with Tom Tinman Schwartz. You can catch part two as the next episode on the Stride Power podcast. Tom will be answering some of the listener questions. We wanted to split this up um, just so you can uh, differentiate between the presentation that Tom had prepared and then some of the great listener questions that people asked. So if you want to listen to part two, please download the next episode. We will see you in the next one. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thank you.